I'm, I'm grateful to stand behind this pulpit any chance I get. I'm always uh, honored, privileged, a little humbled, uh, intimidated to be in Lloyd Brock's shoes. Uh, he is a giant of the faith to me, and I'm, I'm very happy that he was able to go and be with his daughter and now his granddaughter. And, you know, not every pastor... Uh, would have the confidence to be able to uh, to take off and be able to be there with family on such a momentous occasion. But he has confidence in what kind of church you are and what kind of staff you have. And uh, to see your staff uh, rally, see Cheryl just uh, in stride, take care of a funeral yesterday and make sure everything was ready for last night. I, I'm pretty sure she did 12 hours plus here at the church yesterday. Much of that probably wouldn't have happened uh, had it not been for the change in plans. And uh, there are a lot of other people I know that have stepped up uh, you got to, when you have uh, your lead pastor gone. And I am just grateful to you for being the kind of church whose pastor has the freedom uh, to go attend to his family. And uh, thank you for being that kind of church. And uh, I want to thank Cheryl and the rest of the staff and the rest of the, of the lead volunteers who uh, make this church work week in and week out. It's a testament to Pastor Brock's leadership, really, that he can step out for a short period of time and things just keep on humming. And so it's a privilege for me to be here today. Uh, I, I'm, I was thinking as we went through the Christmas season uh, that a lot of people in the Christmas story had to say yes to God in order for all that to happen. Now, my mind a lot of times goes to what ifs, and, uh, and I don't want to go to all the what ifs. What if somebody had said no? Uh, but can you imagine that uh, Mary, when she was uh, addressed by the angel... Uh, her response was, may it be to me just as you have said. And she was going through some significant life disruption. I want to suggest to you that if we had a proper concept of God and we really understood how, how huge, how powerful, how holy, how magnificent God is, we would have a lot easier time saying yes to him every time he asked us anything just like Mary did, just like those wise men did, probably that journey they left, uh, the comfortable surroundings of probably some sort of palace environment, uh, that journey probably took them right around two years to make, and they risked their lives once they got there, and they said yes. In fact, nothing could hold them back from it. Uh, why would they say yes to such a degree of life disruption? Why would Mary uh, say such an immediate yes to such a life disruption? Why would uh, the shepherds, uh, who had flocks and responsibilities that very night. I don't know if they got on their cell phone and called in reinforcements to watch the flocks, if they brought their entire flock with them, but I'm guessing leading an entire flock in the middle of the night uh, to get uh, into Bethlehem because they were in Bethlehem. Uh, that would may, might create a little bit of a ruckus. They said, yes. I, I think the reason all the people in the Christmas story said yes so quickly was they had a proper concept of God. They, they had a better understanding, maybe than we do today, of just how awesome and holy and powerful and great God is. And so when God makes himself clear to them, it was an obvious yes, because you always win when you say yes to God. Tim Keller, who's a pastor in Manhattan, in New York City, uh, he tells a story of in 1970 how a Sunday school teacher... Uh, shared an illustration with his class that forever marked Tim Keller's journey. And uh, he said, uh, the Sunday school teacher said, let's assume the distance between the earth and the sun, which is uh, 93 million miles. Uh, that's quite a bit of distance. 
Uh, let's, let's say that was reduced to the thickness of a piece of paper. So this is the distance, that this, the thickness, not this way, but this way. Uh, the thickness of this piece of paper, say that represents the distance from the, the earth to the sun, 93 million miles. If that was the distance from the earth to the sun, then the distance from the earth to the nearest star would be 70 feet high. So a stack of papers, 70 feet high. And the distance from the earth, or the, the, I'm sorry, the distance throughout the Milky Way galaxy, the diameter of the Milky Way galaxy, which is our galaxy, uh, that, that we, we float around in, that would be a stack of papers 310 miles high. Uh, you can get a little bit of an idea of the scale we're talking about. And the Milky Way galaxy is like a speck of dust compared to the breadth of the entire universe. And Jesus holds that entire universe together by the power of his word. And here's how that Sunday school teacher in 1970 concluded that illustration. He said, now this is not the kind of person you ask into your life to be your assistant. And Tim Keller says uh, that forever marked his view of just how big God is and what God's rightful role in his life had better be. American Christianity, I would suggest to you, is plagued by an epidemic of easy believism that reduces authentic Christian faith to a mental agreement that Jesus lived, that he died, and that he rose again. But i got to ask you, is this really what Jesus was, uh, was asking for? Is this all Jesus was asking for when he said, whosoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life? Did he just mean that we ought to agree that the story of Jesus is true? Or was he after more? When it comes right down to it, what does Jesus want from me? What is he asking of me? Let's ask him. I want to look at a few instances in the New Testament where Jesus tells people that he encounters what they must do to be saved. It's really interesting to see his responses uh, to people when he is uh, talking to them about what they must do to be saved. Matthew chapter 19, verses 16 through 30. And if you've been around church very long, you probably know all three of these stories. Matthew chapter 19, Jesus comes upon uh, a rich young ruler. And uh, the, the rich young ruler says in verse 9, I'm sorry, verse 16, Matthew chapter 19, verse 16 through 30. I'm just getting the numbers all over the place. It's a good thing I'm a preacher and not a, a mathematician. Now, a man came to Jesus and asked, Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Jesus replied, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you want to enter life, obey the commandments. Which ones? The man inquired. Isn't that what we always want to know? But which commandments? What's the bottom line here? What's the, what's the, the basement price? What's the bare minimum I have to do to know that I'm really okay? Jesus replied, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not give false testimony, honor your father and mother, love your neighbor as yourself. All these I have kept, the young man said, what still do I lack? Jesus answered, if you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. Then Jesus said to his disciples, I tell you the truth, it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished and asked, who then can be saved? 
Jesus said, with, with and this is a paraphrase, with man these things are impossible, but with God all things are possible. So the rich young ruler comes to Jesus, says, I want to follow you. Jesus says, okay, you want to follow me? Go sell everything you have. So what must I do to be saved? Is Jesus' answer to me here the same as it is to the rich young ruler? Go sell everything I have and follow him? Let's, let's go to another story real quick before we and just let that question hang out there. How does, that, how does Jesus' answer to the rich young ruler apply to me? What is Jesus asking of me? Go to the next story. John chapter 3, starting in verse 1. John chapter 3, verse 1. That's uh, three books over from Matthew. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Third chapter, we're starting verse 1. He says, Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher who's come from God, for no one could perform the signs you're doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can somebody be born again when they're old? Now, by the way, Nicodemus is not a rich young ruler. Nicodemus is a very wise, learned, respected teacher in the Jewish community of great status and, uh, and great reputation. And notice what Jesus says to him. No one can enter the kingdom of God unless they go out and give everything they have to the poor. Is that what he says to Nicodemus? No, he says something different to Nicodemus. He says, unless they're born again. Nicodemus objects, says, surely they can't enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. And of course, he's a learned, wise teacher. He gets that right. Jesus answered, very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be, Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and yet you don't understand these things? Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen. But still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up that everyone who believes may have eternal life with him. And that's kind of our question. What does he mean when he says believes? Verse 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him, Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people have loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. So Nicodemus, wise one, learned teacher, great reputation. What does Jesus say he has to do to be saved? Become like a little baby again. Start over from ground zero. And i, I got to tell you this. People who have gone to school for a lot of years and they've gotten a bachelor's degree and they've gotten a master's degree 
and they've gotten a, a, a PhD, and they've done postdoctoral work, and they've been tenured, they don't relish the idea of going all the way back to being an undergraduate freshman. In fact, I don't know one in history who's ever signed up for that journey. And what Jesus is telling Nicodemus is even more than that. I want you to go back even farther than going back to being an undergrad freshman. I want you to go all the way back to the beginning and be as if you're being born all over again and you know nothing and you can do nothing and you have to be trained up by God from scratch. That's what he told Nicodemus he had to do. to be. So he told a rich young ruler, you got to get rid of all your riches. He told the, the wise learned teacher, you got to get rid of all your knowledge and status. And look what he does next. John chapter 4, verses 1 through 20. John chapter 4, very next chapter. The Pharisees heard that Jesus was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. Although, in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. When the Lord learned of this, he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now, he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria. And, of course, um, most of you know that uh, Jews didn't walk through Samaria. Samaria was where uh, a bunch of people lived that uh, were related to the Jews but were not Jews. And so they didn't care much for the Samaritans. And, and they had a lot of good reasons for that. And so rather than walking through Samaria, they would walk around Samaria, even if all they were trying to do was get to the other side. It'd be like us not wanting to go through Peoria. Actually, we can do that, can't we, on 474? Bad, bad illustration. <laughs> Forget that. Just know he had to walk. He did, he, being a good Jew, he would have walked all the way around Samaria rather than going through it. But he didn't. He went through Samaria, verse 5. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had, gone, had given to his son Joseph. Jo Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about the sixth hour. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had got into town to buy food. Samaritan, the Samaritan woman said to him, You're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Every time God asks us for anything of this world that is at our disposal, he has in mind to pour out on us riches that are at his disposal. And by riches, I don't mean money. I mean riches, riches that last, riches that are eternal, blessings that may start in this life but carry on forever. Every time he asks us what's in our hand, he has in mind to do something with us and through us that we would have given a thousand lifetimes to be a part of. So he tells this woman, I'll read it again. If you knew the gift of God... And who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his flocks and herds? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her. So what's he want from her for this living water? He said, Okay, go call your husband and come back. 
She says, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you're right. And when you say you have no husband, the fact is you've had five husbands. And the man you, ha- you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. So what does Jesus ask for from the woman, the, li- the woman at the well? In essence, he asks her to trust him with her companionship, her love life. So what is Jesus after in these three encounters? Why does he ask each of these for very different responses? He asked the young ruler for one thing, he asked Nicodemus for another thing, and he asked the woman at the well for something else. I would say to you, he is after the exact same thing in every encounter, and he's after the same thing every time he encounters us, and that is belief, trust, surrender. We may like to separate those out, but really it's all the same. Belief is believing in God enough to do what he says, to give what, what he asks for. It's trusting him with our life, putting the weight of our life in his hands. It's surrendering our will to his, our future to his, our resources to his. It's surrendering our life to his life. The last thing a rich young ruler would want to trust Jesus with was his riches. So naturally, the first thing Jesus asked for is his riches. Whosoever believes in him will not perish, but will have eternal life. Did the rich young ruler believe in Jesus? The last thing the teacher Nicodemus would want to trust Jesus with was his vaunted status as a learned teacher. So naturally, the first thing Jesus asked for from Nicodemus is to become a baby again. Whosoever believes in him will not perish, but will have eternal life. The last thing the woman at the well would want to trust Jesus with is her love life, her source of security and companionship. So naturally, the first thing Jesus asked for is this. Whosoever believes in him will not perish, but will have eternal life. What is the last thing you want to trust Jesus with? Is it possible that the easy, uneasy, ongoing negotiation you engage in with Jesus is exactly what's holding you back from true victory and peace? You want Jesus in your life, but you don't want him taken over. We learn in these stories that if Jesus is not Lord of all, he is not Lord at all. Is is Jesus being mean in these stories? I mean, is it that he just is messing with these people? I mean, is he he being off-putting on purpose? Or is it that he knows what it really means to believe in him and to trust him with everything, and he knows that is the key to unlocking every other good thing that he has stored up for them. Let me ask you this. Is it possible that the key to 2018 being a breakthrough year for you is not to be found in mustering more willpower than you've ever had before to keep more resolutions than you've ever kept before, but it's found in fully surrendering, trusting, believing in the one who holds the whole universe together by his word and loves you with his whole being. John Wesley had a practice at the beginning of every new year of taking his people through what he called a covenant renewal service where they had the chance to make a fresh surrender of their whole selves to Jesus. Some would have done it before and were renewing that covenant and some would do it for the first time during this new year's service. 
The service ended with a covenant renewal prayer. I want to ask you if you would be willing to do something a little bit risky with me. In just a moment, I'm going to ask you to stand and repeat out loud the phrases of a prayer with me. There's no pressure. I don't know that the people around you will be listening to you. I'm sure they will not. They'll be hearing their own voice and my voice, hopefully, and hopefully God's voice. Uh, they're not going to be worried about whether you're saying these words or not. But I think it could be very significant in your life. If we get to a line in this prayer that you're not willing to pray, I want to just say don't pray it. But if you do pray it, pray it out loud. And I believe God will answer and honor this prayer. A word to the wise, though, always be careful what you ask for. Because God does indeed answer prayer. If you'd be willing to uh, pray a, a covenant renewal prayer between you and God, you don't know what the whole prayer is yet, but line by line, I'll feed it to you and you'll repeat after it. And if you, don't, if you get to a point where you say, I don't think I'm ready for that, just, just skip that part. Just stop. But if you pray it, and if you get through the whole prayer, I believe God will answer the prayer. I believe you can walk out of here today renewed in your covenant relationship with him. And having found uh, a moment of pure belief and trust and surrender to him that I believe is what carried Tim Keller through his whole ministry. It's what made the difference in my life when I was 16, when I finally got to a place where I stopped trying to fit Jesus into my life and I allowed him to invite me into his, his life, his purposes, his plan, and it didn't matter anymore what happened to me. If that's where you're at, I think you're on the verge of a breakthrough and this could be it. Would you stand with me if you're willing to? And if you're willing to, pray these words out loud with me. I am no longer my own, but yours. Put me to what you will. Rank me with whom you will. Put me to doing. Put me to suffering. Let me be employed for you or laid aside for you, exalted for you or brought low for you. Let me be full. Let me be empty. Let me have all things. Let me have nothing. I freely and wholeheartedly yield all things to your pleasure and disposal. And now, glorious God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you are mine, and I am yours. So be it. And the covenant now made on earth, let it be ratified in heaven. Amen. Our Father in heaven, you have heard the words, and Lord, as we've prayed them to you, we ask that you would receive them in the spirit in which they've been prayed. And where we have lacked follow through, where we've lacked power, Lord, we ask that uh, you would do a fresh work in our lives, and that we truly would not try to follow you by mustering more willpower to follow you, but we would just simply surrender to you and trust you enough to settle 
for what you have for us. Because we know, Lord, that's never settling. It's always a good deal for us when we give what you ask and we receive what you have in mind. We pray it in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.